There is a popular saying out there that cheaters never prosper. Well, the ancient Greeks lived and died by those words when it came to running and judging foot races at the Olympic Games. Why were they so concerned? That is a topic of today's Footnoting History. Hi there, it's Esther again, and welcome to the June 8th edition of Footnoting History. Now, if we think of the countries where the most famous runners come from, we'd probably first think of Kenya or Ethiopia for their current crop of excellent middle and long distance runners. And I suppose we would also think of places like the United States or Jamaica for their current track and field stars who really dominate those short distance events. But I think if you were to ask anyone to name an ancient running culture, I think that they would no doubt think of ancient Greece first. Because anyone with a passing knowledge of sports history knows that our modern Olympic Games originated in Greece. And in the ancient games, there were running competitions. But in the beginning, you know, there were only running competitions. And this fascination with running has always been an integral part of Greek culture. Some famous ancient Greeks, such as Homer and the philosopher Xenophanes, had written that being fleet of foot was a particularly desirable quality in a man. A major plot point in Homer's Iliad turned on Achilles' superior running skills, Achilles, of course, being the greatest of Homer's mythic heroes, in that scene where his enemy, Hector, led him on a wild uh, chase around the city walls until Achilles overcame him. It was an event that the gods made sure happened, which implied that being quick on your feet was not just an advantage in battle or war, but also a gift from the gods themselves. Good runners, fast runners, were in a sense exercising a divine gift. And of course, there's a scene in the Iliad where the funeral games involved a race for the fastest runners. And so running could also be spoken about in the context of ritual and religious celebration. I could talk about several examples in Greek mythology where running is a prized and highly regarded talent. But today I would like to focus more on running as a spectator sport in ancient Greece and particularly how it developed as the premier sport of the ancient Olympic Games. Now, just to be clear, there were lots of formal state-sponsored athletic competitions in ancient Greece, and they're very interesting topics themselves, but I'm going to talk exclusively about the ancient Olympics precisely because we have so much written about it, and it's a good jumping-off point to discuss the whole business of how running underpinned the Greeks' preoccupation with physical education in general. Physical education was seen as the foundation of a stable and war-ready society. So to begin, of the four major state-sponsored athletic competitions, the other three being the Pythian, Isthmian, and Nemean Games, the Olympics was the oldest and most prestigious of them all. Established sometime around 776 BC, the Olympics were inspired by religious festivals and funeral games that were already part of the cultural fabric of these communities. They were open to all free and male Greeks. Each of them swore an oath to Zeus that he would respect the rules of the competition and the decisions laid down by the judges. They trained and competed naked, and the winners were regarded as having attained a godlike excellence. Ancient Greece in particular was a patriarchal society, and so women were not only excluded from the political world of men, but also excluded from the games, both as competitors and as spectators. According to some sources, unmarried women were allowed to watch, although other sources say that women could be thrown off cliffs if they were found at the game. So who really knows 
what went on there. But what we do know is that there were separate athletic competitions for women. The Heraia, which was held in honor of Hera, Zeus's wife, involved foot races in which Greek women wore short tunics with one of their breasts exposed, probably uh, to show that they were women. Spartan women were said to have trained with men, but competed in their very own women's races held at the festival honoring Artemis, who we all know was a huntress and a virgin goddess. In any case, women's athletic competitions were less about rivalry and more about celebrating feminine health and beauty. The Olympics in ancient Greece was at least at first all about running. Today we have hundreds of sports that are represented in both the summer and winter games, but the majority of the competitions in Greece at that time involved foot races of various lengths. You had the stadion race of 200 meters, and any man who won that could be rightly called the fastest man in Greece. You have the diolos race of about 384 meters. The hippos race was a distance of somewhere between 710 and 760 meters. And don't think this involved horses because it was called uh, the hippos race. Hippos likely referred to the fact that it was the same length as the hippodrome that was used for chariot racing. And then you have the longest, which was the Dolikos race of 4,600 meters. For those of you who thought the longest race was going to be the 26.2 miles of the marathon, I'm very sorry to disappoint you, but the marathon is a modern invention that made its debut in the first modern Olympic Games of 1896, and that will be a subject of a later podcast this year. There were also a few specialty races. One uh, called the Hoplidotromos, sorry for my pronunciation, which was a race ran in full armor and the last event on the program. And another was called Lampadadromia, which was a relay race with torches. Now, how were the winners of these races determined? Because today, we determine a winner of any race according to a rather recent technological invention, the watch, specifically the stopwatch. We also have cameras that can catch, in high definition no less, what a competitor is doing in any race at any given moment. So our concerns with cheating and determining a fair result in any athletic competition has more to do with what happens off the field rather than on it, such as doping or even activities that would compromise an athlete's amateur status. In the ancient Olympic Games, there were no stopwatches, so time was not really a factor in determining winners. Watches are essential today because two competitors can arrive at the finish line at almost the same time, and we need a reliable tool to determine the fastest time. But the winners back in ancient Greece were judged to be those who got there first relative to the other competitors, kind of in the same way that we judged the winners of a race back when we were all kids in a schoolyard. And if two or three runners seem to get there at the same time, well, that's what the judges are for. That's why we need judges, and that's why competitors in the ancient games had to swear that they would abide by the judges' decisions. If anyone were to be caught trying to bribe their opponents or the judges, they would have to pay some serious penalties, some serious, serious fines. Even so, there were some really clever mechanisms that were put into place in order to ensure that the race was conducted under the fairest conditions possible. One of the main issues or concerns with putting on a fair race was making sure all of the runners started at the same exact time. They really wanted to avoid a situation in which a runner could get a head start, no matter how minuscule that head start may have been. The starting line was originally a line drawn in the sand, and then later in the 5th century BC, a stone slab with grooves carved into it was placed across the track. 
The runners, who were barefoot, would press their heels against the rear groove while gripping the front groove with their toes. These slabs were used as simple starting blocks. The way that the double grooves were spaced made an upright starting position necessary, which explains why Greek statuary and vases show runners, even the sprinters, beginning from this position. If a runner got a false start, he would be whipped with a forked stick. Around 400 BC came the innovation of the starting gate, for which we have lots of archaeological evidence. Each runner had an individual gate with grooves running along the ground for the cords that would be released when the race officially began. Releasing the cords, which ran along these grooves, would allow the barriers to fall and free each runner to start. However, there were a couple of problems with the starting gate. First of all, runners could get entangled in the cords, leaving them behind the rest of the runners who already started. Second, the cords tended to be of different lengths, and so not all of the gates could open at the same exact moment, giving some runners the advantage of only about a second, but still an advantage. The starting gate was abandoned in favor of a far more successful device called the hisplex. The hisplex consisted of two ropes, which were stretched out in front of the runners, and then tied to two poles at each end of the starting line. One rope was about knee-high, and the other was about waist-high. There was a, a twisted rope spring, which has been similarly used in catapults, to knock the poles down to the ground, which of course would then lower the ropes for the rest of the runners to begin the race. When the hisplex was lowered, it made such a noise, such a racket, that it basically signaled to the runners and the spectators that the race had begun. Apparently, a couple of scholars, I'm assuming archaeologists, reconstructed the hisplex after finding a vase that depicted the device, and they tried it out and found that the way the device worked made it very difficult for the runners to trip on the ropes, as they had previously feared. So in that respect, it worked perfectly. This explains why the hisplex was so popular and why it was installed in other stadiums around 300 BC. And so the Olympic Games was at its heart a religious ceremony that celebrated the gods and the glory of the state, that is, the city-state. It also represented the culmination of a Greek boy's physical education in the art of sport, which also included boxing, wrestling, javelin, and other ball games, as well as running. The Greek city-states actively promoted physical education as a domestic policy that would begin for many boys at the age of seven. Winning the Olympic crown made from the branches of a sacred olive tree not only was an act that served to honor Zeus, but also the spirits of the dead heroes whose names would be forever immortalized by their courageous acts in war. Cheating of any kind would undermine the very religious spirit of the games. Around the stadium of Olympia stood 14 bronze statues of Zeus. On the base of each statue was an inscription warning against cheating. We might imagine that those statues, which were funded by the fines levied on cheaters, stood as powerful reminders of the sacred nature of the Olympic Games. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll talk about why a picture of Simon de Montfort is hanging in the U.S. House of Representatives. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>